This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 37 as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and so he went, and he reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, and you did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. Let's pray, folks. Father, we acknowledge this morning your greatness, your majesty, your sovereign control over this entire planet of ours. You are a God of love and grace and kindness and forgiveness and healing. And we remind ourselves once again that you are on the throne. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of coming into your presence. As we have already been reminded in our service, we are unworthy of the least of your favors. For we are sinners and we often go astray. 
We put on a good front so that we might impress people, but deep down inside, very often, our hearts are far from you. And as once again, we remind ourselves of the need to come humbly before you, we do that individually and corporately. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning and give us encouragement. Father, we thank you for your abundant goodness to our church family as you have brought many people back from, uh, from ill health to strong health. Many people are on, in recovery. And uh, almost every day we are reminded that you are worthy of our praise for we can come to you and ask on behalf of these dear folk, folks whom we love. Lord, we have been reminded in this week of the incredible wickedness and violence and evil that is still in our world as if we needed a reminder. And our hearts are broken for these dear folks in Ukraine who are now running for their lives and who are uh, in the crosshairs of a, uh, of a terrible regime. We ask, dear Lord, that you would protect them. We know that there are many evangelical ministries and organizations and mission organizations working and functioning in Ukraine. And some of them have even been supported by our own church. We know that there are many believers, many people who are crying out to God for protection. We ask, and we ask for their safety. We ask that you would surround them with your grace and uh, keep them in the hollow of your hand. And we are told in scripture to, to remember those who are making decisions and who have leadership over us. So we lift up all of those who must make difficult decisions about in the days to come about how we should be involved, how we should intervene in a way that would be appropriate and fitting. Lord, give these leaders wisdom. May they be guided by your hand and may this simply be a, another example of your sovereign hand at work. We were reminded in the scripture that we just uh, looked at in the hymn that we just sang that you are a God of peace and so we ask you to show your strong hand and give peace to this part of the world again Lord we thank you for the passage of scripture that we have to uh, look at this morning we ask as Pastor Carr comes that you would anoint his lips may the words that he share with us not merely be his own but may they be from you. May you separate the chaff from the wheat and speak to our hearts and minds and help us to respond with humble hearts that are ready to receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. If you were somewhat paying attention just a little bit during the reading you heard a repeated word, woe. Those are always fun passages to preach. That's my text this morning, the woes of Jesus. It's interesting as you look at this text, you begin to think about many things, but one of the things that came to my mind was the blind spots, the blind spots of life. Uh, I've had the privilege of teaching my son to drive, and I'm now 
engaging that privilege with my daughter. The idea of teaching someone to drive is challenging, but one of the major things you're trying to teach a new driver is about blind spots. We will go to the course that they provide and we will work on parking, we will work on reverse, we will work on all these different tactics that you need as a driver to learn to drive defensively. But inevitably, a cone always gets hit. It's a story of life, isn't it? Our blind spots can cause damage. Our blind spots are a big deal. And that's exactly what I believe Jesus is saying in this text. Our blind spots matter. Last week, Pastor Ian preached to us, and one of the specific things he said as I was listening and taking notes was found in verse 29. So if you'll just look back to verse 29, and you read this, and when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Pastor Ian made the connection that that this generation continues to this generation. That we are an evil generation. And of course we see that with what has unfolded lately on our television sets as one country invades another. The scary part about Pastor Ian's application is coming to verse 37 of my own text, where it reads, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so we went in and reclined at the table. One of the scary things about my text is that the evil and the wickedness is not just out there, but the evil and the wickedness is even in the places of worship of the Lord. Friends, as we look at our text, we realize that Jesus is speaking to both the Pharisees and the lawyers. The Pharisees included the religious pious, those who went out of their way to obey the law of God, thinking that they were, in a sense, earning their own righteousness. The lawyers were the theologians. Think of the seminary professors, the instructors, the teachers. It's these individuals that Jesus gives the key word woe to. He's not speaking to those outside the church. He's speaking to those inside the church. I read Phil Riken recently, and he asked, as many others have asked, what is the greatest threat to the church in the 21st century? He goes on to say, is it the secular hostility to the Bible? Is it the spread of other religions like Islam? Or could it be that the theologically informed, the religiously active, the morally conservative people whose hearts are far from God? See what Riken is asking, he's saying, is the greatest threat to Christianity spiritual hypocrisy? Is that the greatest threat to Christianity? It would appear that Jesus might agree as he uses some six times in our text, seven if you count Matthew's account of the gospel, woe. Woe to you Pharisees. 
Woe to you religious teachers. Woe. All this starts with an invitation. An invitation in verse 37 where we read that Jesus was invited to dine with a Pharisee. We might wonder what was the occasion, what was the purpose, but one of the first things we should notice is that Jesus went. Jesus met with tax collectors. Jesus met with prostitutes. And yes, Jesus even met with Pharisees. Jesus went into the house of this Pharisee and he reclined at the table. But there, according to verse 38, something astonishing happens, which begins to tell us the purpose, or at least the heart, of the Pharisee who invited Jesus in. So was the Pharisee inviting Jesus in just to show hospitality? Was the Pharisee inviting Jesus in to seek to learn something from Jesus? Was the Pharisee inviting Jesus in to add to the status of his own stature for Jesus was popular at this point? Or was he simply inviting Jesus in to catch Jesus in something he said? We may not know the heart of the Pharisee, but we surely are given from Luke's account the passion of the Pharisee. For we're told that he was astonished at what he saw. Friends, what was it that the Pharisee noticed about Jesus? We're told in verse 37 that Jesus reclined at the table. And Jesus welcomed the invitation. Jesus was willing to meet with the Pharisee. What was it that Jesus did that astonished the Pharisee? Jesus didn't wash his hands. I want you to understand that in our day and age, we understand the hygiene and the, the, the goodness, if you will, of washing our hands before we eat. But that was not the issue there. That's not why the Pharisee was astonished. The Pharisee was astonished for ceremonial cleansing reasons. See, the, the Pharisee seemed to understand that, that according to their rules... When one sat down for a meal, they should pour water over their hands as a symbol of cleansing from the filth of the world. For they thought that it was the things outside that made one dirty inside. But Jesus would have none of that. So Jesus did not go along with their rules. And this astonished the Pharisee. The Pharisee judged Jesus. This was really a meal or a dinner of judgment. Leon Morris, one of the commentators that deals with the Gospel of Luke, points this out. I think it's worth sharing to you as he captures the moment so well with these words. He says, these religious pious they would pour or baptize their hands with water before eating to remove the defilement contracted by the contact with a sinful world. These Pharisees clearly expected that Jesus, a noted religious teacher, would conform to their accepted practices. But Jesus refused. 
Jesus refused to wash his hands. Jesus was in a public protest. He was standing against their extra-biblical accepted practices. Jesus said, no way, not me, not now. Because Jesus was standing against their false understanding. In fact, what happens in this meal is actually a turning of events. Here the Pharisee is judging Jesus, but quickly we begin to see the pronouncement of judgment from Jesus to the others. In verses 39, something begins to take place. Look at what it says. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and wash the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. He's saying you who profess to be in the church, the wickedness isn't just out there. The wickedness is in here. Because the wickedness is in you. These are hard words. We see Jesus calling out the empty rules of these twisted truth tellers. Uh, Jesus is calling a farce the Pharisee parade. Jesus is saying, this is nonsense. Quit with your fake religiousness and get to the real heart of the matter. See, Jesus says, you focus on the outside, but you're filthy inside. Their clean hands were overshadowed by their dirty hearts. And then Jesus says something absolutely astounding. If it's not underlined in your Bible, it should be, at least in my opinion, because Jesus says something he says we ought not to say. Jesus says, you fools. That's harsh language. I would remind you that in the Mount of the Beatitude where Jesus is preaching, Jesus says, whoever says you fool will be liable to, to the hell of fire. Uh, he makes it very clear that, that this isn't something you should be loose with your lips saying. But in that same Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus was showing is that what we say really does matter. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 14 says, a fool a fool says in their heart, there is no God. So in our text, Jesus is aiming the term fool at those who are leading others astray by their teaching. Because they're making much of the outward appearance, but ignoring the heart. See, central to Jesus' issue is that the heart matters. Uh, to put it bluntly, uh, the Pharisees could keep their own rules, but they were still full of wickedness. Now again, last week, Pastor Ian walked us through an important text of the importance of the light. And Jesus is really picking up that idea here, which is found in verse 34. Jesus said there, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. You fools! The light that you seem to shine is really only out of darkness. 
It's out of wickedness. It's out of sinfulness for yourselves. The Pharisees were merely concerned with what one does, where Jesus is deeply concerned with who one is. Friends, don't miss that. The Pharisee is merely concerned with what one does, where Jesus is deeply concerned with who one is. See, Jesus is stressing the importance of the inward over and above the outward. Book of Samuel, Samuel said, man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart. And here we see Jesus pointing to the heart, saying it's about what's in you that matters. Again, Jesus is going back to the importance of having the light in you. And in verse 36, he says, if you have the light in you, then your whole body is full of light. It's wholly bright. The outward will manifest righteousness and purity and holiness. Because of the light that is in you. But friends, if we're honest, it's a whole lot easier to have a list to do than to work on our hearts to be. That's all of us. When we mess up, we we clearly want just a checklist to do where Jesus says, I'm after the heart. I'm after the heart of who you are rather than simply what you do. Friends, in seeking to avoid being foolish then, are we checking our blind spots? Are we beginning to put to death our extra-biblical standards? Those rules we've set as judgments for ourselves and others? That's what we need to do. We need to be putting to death our extra-biblical standards, our rules of judgments that we place on others and ourselves. Because in doing that, we're showing ourselves not to be foolish. By putting those to death, we're saying we are aligned with the light. See, we have the important task to check our own hearts. To look into the mirror of our lives. To see past the outward appearance. To really examine who we are. And that's when Jesus begins to work through his woes. So what is a woe? A woe is a great distress It's of biblical proportion. It's the idea of of deep and great sorrow. A woe is a condition of suffering due to calamity that's fallen or will fall. We see it in places like Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9. We see the prophets use language like woe is you or woe is me. And here we see Jesus warn of the calamity of distorting the gospel. For that's exactly what these religious people were doing in the church. And Jesus begins with the woes to the Pharisees. 
In verses 42 through 44, he actually begins with an unlisted woe in Luke, but one that's listed in Matthew. If you put this Matthew account and the Luke account parallel, you see it. In Matthew 23, verse 25, he says, Woe to you, for you cleanse the cup. Jesus dealt with that, but Luke puts it under, You fools! It's important. Woe to you, you cleanse the cup, but what inside is wicked. He goes on to verse 42, Woe to you, for you neglect justice, yet you tithe the herb. The Pharisees were meticulous about tithing. One-tenth. They went down even to the herb so that they could say, I've tithed faithfully. Yet in all this effort of justifying themselves, they missed the point of loving God and loving others. Or how about in verse 43 where he says, Woe to you, you love the best seat for yourself. Uh, You seek the best seat in the synagogue. You do this to inflate your ego, to to elevate your self-worth. You desire to be recognized by others for your accomplishments. Woe is you. Or how about verse 44? Woe to you, for you are on unmarked graves that people walk over unknowingly. Friends, i got to admit, when I came to verse 44, I said, what in the world is he saying? An unmarked grave? I remember him calling them whitewashed tombs that, that were all prettied up on the outside. What does he mean by an unmarked grave? As I began to study this passage I recall Numbers chapter 19, verse 16, which actually says if a person touched a dead body or a grave site, they were unclean for seven days according to Levitical law. And here, the Pharisees, Jesus says, are like graves, unmarked graves, that people unknowingly touch and contaminate themselves by associating with them. What a scary thing to be said of those who are pious and religious. That rather than being pushed in the right direction, people are actually being contaminated by your presence unknowingly. And yet this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Woe to you. And just as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, a lawyer, a a theologian speaks up and he says, basically, in your rebuttal, Lord, to the religious Pharisees, you insult us as well. Obviously, you didn't mean to do that. (laughs) To which Jesus says, oh, yes, I did. Listen up. Woe is you. For you load people with burdens that you're unwilling to touch. Your legalism burdens people. You pile expectations on others. You hold your own oral traditions higher than Scripture. How often this is the case. Churches wrestle with these things. The old sacred cows. Do we hold things up higher than we hold Scripture? Verse 47, woe to you, for you build tombs for the prophets your fathers killed. What's interesting about this one is that these men were actually building tombs to celebrate the prophets. They thought they were doing good things, all the while never confessing the sin of their fathers who put them to death. 
in their effort to honor God, their unconfessed hearts brought only dishonor to God. They thought they were doing God's service. But like their fathers, they were fighting against God's word. What's interesting about that passage is it talks about God's wisdom, about the prophets who would suffer and die, and that judgment would be added to that generation. What's seen in all of that is the death of Christ where forgiveness of sin is made possible. But then he adds one last woe in verse 52 where he says, Woe to you, lawyers, For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You hinder others. Yet the word of God came true. You hinder others. You hinder others. See, these theologians, these teachers, were being roadblocks rather than pathways for others to see Jesus. Rather than pointing to Jesus, they were pointing to themselves with their rules and their obligations and all their extracurriculars. They were really teaching a false way of works righteousness rather than the gospel through Christ. Friends, how have these warnings of woe affected us? They should. Because we're sinners too. We're forgiven sinners in Christ, but we battle these same things. We battle these same errors. Hopefully the difference between us and the Pharisees is that we are in the process always of confessing and repenting. As Pastor Jim said, our elders stood up here and said, we confess our sins because we sin. That's the difference. The Pharisees aren't worse than us. It's that they don't understand their need to repent. They don't understand their need to repent of their own self-righteousness. They don't understand their need to repent of their own spiritual blindedness. They don't understand their need to repent of the way they distort the focus upon Jesus. But we do. By the grace of God, we do. We recognize our need for Jesus. And that's why we sing of his grace and we talk of his mercy because it's possible in Christ alone. And so while we may see areas of the woes that apply to us, we repent and we run to Jesus. Friends, understand that there are some that don't repent. In verses 53 and verse 54, we see the opposition to Jesus increase. In reaction to this encounter with Jesus, real new opposition begins. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to press in, to provoke, to lying in wait, to capture Jesus. My own professor, Bob Carroll, used to point out dealing with Luke's gospel, he'd say the overall point is simple. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to complete his work, death on the cross. But we must understand that death on the cross includes rejection by those who claim to be his people. 
And that's what was taking place here as things were heating up. Those who claimed to be the church were the very ones who wanted to see Jesus dead. Rather than saying, woe is me, as Isaiah did, after seeing the holiness and the purity of God, rather than repenting, they rejected. Friends, the best way for us to honor Jesus is to repent. Yet rather than repentance, these religious leaders only offered rejection. They pressed in hard on Jesus. The Pharisees and the lawyers, they were outraged at Jesus. They, they were angry that he spoke truth about their personal blind spots. Blind spots they didn't want to hear about. The truth is, they were anti-critical fundamentalists. It's a new term I just picked up. It's a term that kind of categorizes our civilization today. Fundamentalism, everything is a banner to die for. But anti-critical that we don't want anybody to ever reject our point of view. That's exactly who the Pharisees were. They were anti-critical fundamentalists. And it shined through that they only wanted to hear with those who agreed with them. And when they heard Jesus, what they did is they pressed in, they provoked, they laid in wait to capture because they didn't like what he had to say. Friends, how much this is like our current generation, as Pastor Ian said last week. Our own anti-critical fundamentalism shines through as we only want to hear from those who agree with us. We see this in our generation on social media. We see it even in our own lives when we tune people out. If we're not careful, our own blind spots will get the best of us. These words of woe we're giving as warnings of judgment, judgment that is coming. Rather than rejecting, we should repent. We should stand up for truth. We should stand up for the gospel, even when it's unpopular. And it will be unpopular. Some will be angry with our preaching of the gospel because of what the gospel requires. And what does the gospel require? The gospel requires us to admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior because we cannot save ourselves. And if we keep that message pure and true, people will reject it. What are you saying about me? That's harsh. That's uncivilized. That's unacceptable. All the things we will hear from a culture that pushes against a gospel that requires us to repent and believe. Others will be angry with us for what the gospel rejects. The gospel rejects their extra-biblical requirements. The gospel rejects their self-righteousness. And so there will be those who are angry with us because we will not align with their extra-biblical views or their views of themselves as pure and righteous. Church, I ask you, are you resting in the gospel? Do you have a disposition of repentance 
or resistance. When people point out your blind spots, how do you respond? We must understand that the greatest battle we fight today is not out there, but it's in here. It's about repentance. It's about ownership of our sin. That's why David said, cleanse me from all my sin. David was a man known as a man after God's own heart. He didn't just want to be forgiven of some of his sin, but all of his sin. Friends, may we cry out like the psalmist in Psalm 42 who said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. May we thirst for Jesus and his righteousness while we reject our own self-righteousness. Let's pray. Father, these are hard texts because not only are they words of judgment, the words of judgment aimed at those in the church. God, help us to not just let this roll off our backs, but help us to have a spirit of repentance. Lord, wherever we have blind spots, help us to see. Help us to conform to your will and to your word. May we seek your face for you and you alone are our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.